0: Let us now continue working our way through Mark's gospel. We come to chapter 2, beginning with verse 23, beginning with verse 23, and we will read through chapter 3, verse 6, and you will immediately see that these narratives are, are connected in theme. Mark two twenty-three through 3, 6. Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, it gives to us great delight to turn to the Word of the Lord and to remember that it speaks of the One who came into this world, this wonderful Gospel of Mark, speaks of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who obeyed the law that we broke, who went to the cross and to pay the penalty of our awful sins who removed the curse by taking our curse-bearing upon Himself. And we ask that our hearts may be enlarged and opened and our hearts eager to receive the truth as it is in Jesus as we work our way through this very brief but wonderful gospel. It is so rich, it is so full, because Christ is here. And we ask that lost people will come to know Jesus And we pray that every believer in Christ will be built up in the most holy faith, even on this day as we proceed. Father, we have confessed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now we pray that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the words that we are about to read, will bless by illumining the page and opening our hearts to receive it. We pray in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning with verse 23. This is the Word of the Lord. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? For man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, controversy was a necessary part of the ministry of our Lord Jesus on this earth. He tells us in Matthew chapter 10 that he came not to bring peace, but a sword. Controversy will follow to varying degrees with the disciples of Jesus, despite our being loving, gracious, just being truthful will bring varying degrees of controversy. Now, in Mark, there's a series of controversy narratives. Last time, we saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, and that caused a great controversy. The present controversy relates to the Sabbath day. In each controversy, we are led to see more clearly clearly who Jesus is and why he came. And this passage is about the person of Christ and the authority of God's word. And it is about the necessity of controversy when truth is at stake. Well, here is truth incarnate, and they believe he's breaking the Sabbath. Let's go to the text, and we see first the point of the controversy, the point of the controversy, taking in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2. The Sabbath, along with circumcision, were the primary boasts of the Jew. God established the Sabbath, and the Sabbath pointed to both creation and to redemption. Some rabbis link the coming of the Messiah to Israel's faithful keeping of the Sabbath laws, God forbade work on the Sabbath. But what is work, asked the Pharisee, and what should be answered simply was convoluted by Pharisaic traditions added to the law of God. Rabbinic law legislated for every possible circumstance. The law permitted one to pluck corn that did not belong to him so long as he used his own hands. Deuteronomy 23:25 the law clearly permits Jesus and his disciples as they are going through this field to take this grain and to eat of it but the Pharisees thought that was doing work on the Sabbath because it was reaping and so they were looking at Jesus and his disciples and accusing them of Sabbath breaking Jesus and His disciples were being watched and watched very, very closely. What Jesus does in joy and service on the Sabbath day, imagine, perhaps it was a brilliant, beautiful day. He and His disciples are going through the the golden plumes of 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 a wheat field, and He takes these grains and eats and thanks God for them, and they enjoy it. Perhaps He was on His way to to the synagogue to teach, or perhaps he was on his way with his disciples uh, to perform some, some work of mercy. We don't know, but there is Jesus in all of his joy serving the Lord and obeying the law that we broke, and it was a threat. It was a threat to the false piety and religious system of the Pharisees. And so in verse 25, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? The point of the controversy ultimately is the Word of God. The Pharisees forbade what the Word of God allowed. The Pharisees said, what your disciples are doing is simply not lawful. And Jesus will answer, among other things, the Bible teaches no such thing and gives to them an example of where works of mercy and necessity are totally appropriate on the Sabbath day. Now, should the church follow her Lord in being controversial? Well, yes. When we speak the truth and we do not compromise it, the church must follow her Lord in being controversial. Does it not provoke controversy simply to say we stand by every word that God has spoken over against the machinations of man? J. Gresham Machen made the comment during the modernist fundamentalist controversy Men tell us that our preaching should be positive and not negative, that we can preach the truth without attacking error. But if we follow that advice, we shall have to close our Bible and desert its teachings. The New Testament is a polemic book almost from beginning to end. And so, yes, controversy is necessary. It's part of being faithful to Christ. It is part of being faithful to his word, both as a church and also as individual believers in the Lord Jesus. Which leads to the second thing we see. Jesus challenges the Pharisees' authority in verses 25 and 26. Now, William Hendrickson, I think, is correct when he says it's very probable that there is a connection with the prior text that we saw last week and this text here that we read today. A probable connection with the feasting emphasis in the preceding passage, showing the manifestation of gladness in how the Sabbath is to be kept. And we can learn from that in observing the Lord's Day, which should be for us a high day, the great day of gladness. It should gladden the Christian's heart when we worship him on the first day of the week and have a day of rest for our ordinary labors. But here, Jesus must confront the Pharisees' approach to life. This goes way down deep to the heart of what it meant to be a Pharisee. And it speaks to our hearts as well. Jesus cites the incident that is in 1 Samuel chapter 21, the first six verses in which David and his men who are involved in serving the Lord and are men who are hastening um, to obey the Lord, David and his men entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread. Now, this is the bread of the presence in the tabernacle of which we read in Exodus 25, where there were 12 loaves on the golden table representing the 12 tribes of Israel and their fellowship with the Lord. And every Sabbath, the old bread was exchanged for loaves, fresh loaves, new bread, and the old loaves were eaten by the priests and by the priests alone. The Pharisees did not understand the grace of the Sabbath. If David and his men, in a case of necessity, could eat the bread of the presence then surely the disciples of David's greater son can pluck grain on the Sabbath in their service of the king in order to sustain themselves in that service. God explicitly, as I have pointed out, sanctions this in Deuteronomy chapter 23. David the king, the precursor to the Messiah, did something that they thought was contrary to the Sabbath. But after all, no law of God is here broken. Only the man-made rules and the false authority of the Pharisees. Jesus was acting in accord with the Word of God. He was not acting in accord with the viewpoint of the Pharisees. Which leads us thirdly to see Jesus reveals his... Authority in verses 27 and 28. Now, in verse 27, our Lord gets at the fundamental issue. This is chapter 2, verse 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So, in verse 27, our Lord gets at the fundamental issue. Why was the Sabbath given? It was a gift. It was a gift from God to man, not as a work performed in order that we might be accepted by God. There is no work that we can perform that makes us acceptable to God. That is why we need the Redeemer. So, the Sabbath was made for man. God gave it for man's good. God gave it for man's sustenance. Had not Isaiah 58, 13 commanded Israel to call the Sabbath a delight? R.T. France makes the comment when the negative overwhelms the positive, as it has done repeatedly in observance of the Christian Sunday as well as of the Jewish Sabbath, something important has been lost. Now, that is not to say there are no negatives. God did make commands as to what they were not to do on the Sabbath day. Otherwise, there would have been no Sabbath. There would have been nothing special about it whatsoever. But the Sabbath's negatives were there to enforce the overwhelming positives, the overwhelming blessing of that day as a day of rest from ordinary labors and a day of the worship of the name of the Lord their God, a day in which to delight in the Lord A day on which to show mercy to those who needed mercy. A day that anticipated the eschatological day of rest that awaits all the people of God that remains for you as well as the people of God. So note this our Lord is not setting aside the fourth commandment, He is not setting aside the command to obey the Sabbath. I sometimes hear Christians say that as they look at this passage. That is not what Jesus is doing. That's not the meaning of the passage. Our Lord is pressing its proper use and observance in contrast with the Pharisees' abuse of this good gift that God has given to his people. Sinclair Ferguson has summarized the Pharisees' abuse of the Sabbath. And a very interesting little illustration. It's interesting to me because, you know, Sinclair Ferguson is quite a golfer. Um, very, very good golfer, actually, has been for years and years. But uh, here he has this little illustration. And my father loved, loved the game. I don't know what happened to me, but uh, <laughs> here's his illustration. The Pharisees were like a committee of a golf club, which had beautiful fairways on which to play. But in order to preserve the fairways from being cut up with divots, they insisted that golfers play their shots from the rough grass at the side. But golf courses like Sabbaths are meant to be enjoyed, not preserved as living museums. Tragically, the Pharisees were turning the day of blessing into a burden. Well, yes, the Sabbath was made for man's blessing. It was made for man's well-being, for his enjoyment of God and his service to his fellow man and, and needed needy believers around and all of those blessings. And that is the fundamental issue that completely seems to fly over the heads of the Pharisees. They miss it all together. Do we see some of this attitude in our own hearts? Do I see a heart issue in my own heart that needs to be addressed as I think through the sin of the Pharisee? Will you take note of just a few possibilities, areas in which we might need to ask the Lord to show us and to change our hearts? And let us see if some of these things apply to us, apply to me in particular. Well, the first thing we might want to think of is this. Legalism, and let me tell you, legalism does not mean the rightful place of the law of God in the Christian's life, the believer's life. We live in a day that's influenced by so many different factors. And there's an unbiblical viewpoint out there that if we love the law of God, that somehow we're legalists, well, that's just not true. When we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we by the Holy Spirit, we begin to love the law of God. We simply do not rely upon the law for our justification but we do love the law of God. So legalism, not meaning a proper regard for the law of God, but abusing the law by coming up with our own rules, our own regulations, and especially thinking that we can be acceptable to God by meriting His favor and observance of the law, however that law might be conceived. Legalism is dehumanizing. And so is antinomianism, by the way. The law of God did not rob the Pharisees of joy. The Pharisees' imposition of their own man-made law, accretions to the law, robbed the joy right out of life. The legalistic approach to life is a burden that goes right against what it means to be human to be created in God's image. And in that way, legalism is an affront to God, but also dehumanizing and degrading. External morals. I'm talking about man-made accretions to the law. External morals of man's own making are encouraged while the heart withers away. And that is not how God's law is to function in a believer's life not in hearts that are free, not in saved souls. So, I ask myself, ask yourselves, is there anything like this in my heart, either a withering heart or do I have a glowing heart of freedom in Christ? And then another concern that we see among the Pharisees that we might ask ourselves concerning, do I have a tendency to abstraction? Well, pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, What I mean by that is knowing much about God, but not knowing God. When we can say things that are true about God, while God remains impersonal to us, our knowledge of God then becomes very warped. For example, we may know that God is everywhere present, and that is a true biblical theological truth that we should hold to. He is everywhere present, but do we know the God who is everywhere present? And that this God loves me and is gracious to me, that he is for me in his personal presence as I live my Christian life. The personal pronouns then are skewed by legalism. When Paul was freed from legalism, what did he exclaim? He loved me and gave himself for me. The personal pronouns. He loved me and gave himself for me. No abstraction here. Not something just about God, but not knowing God. He knew God through Christ our Lord. Or another example. The Pharisees' emphasis on sins caused them to miss the fundamental issue of sin. The whole problem that produces sins. Because you see, people of God, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So the Pharisees were that church historical term that I use frequently. They were essentially Pelagian. They essentially denied original sin, at least in practical ways. And they focused upon sins rather than the heart that produces the sins. I'm not saying the sins are unimportant, but they did not focus upon the heart. And when I realize that the fundamental problem is with my fallen human heart, then I fly to Christ. Then I am driven out of myself to grace. And all of this was missed and is still missed by the pharisaical human heart, and I believe there's a Pharisee in every fallen human heart. So Jesus then proclaims that he is sovereign over the Sabbath. In verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so the Sabbath was made for man. Jesus as man's Lord has the authority to determine the right use of the Sabbath, to apply the Word of God, to interpret the very law that he gave, and of everything else, for that matter, Jesus is the one who gave the law at Sinai. He is the one who is, is, is of the essential essence with the Father. He is God himself become man, and he has authority as mediator as well. He's greater than the temple. He fulfills its meaning, including the use of the bread of presence, and certainly of the grain in the fields. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I have a right, he is saying, to lay down how the Sabbath is to be observed. You do not have the right to add these accretions to the law of God. And he calls himself the Son of Man. We'll look at this later in Mark. We've seen it a couple of times already, but Son of Man is that divine person of Daniel chapter 7. The Messiah is God incarnate. He has the right to determine this matter. The Sabbath, its meaning and use is subject to me, Jesus is saying, the sovereign redeemer of sinners. I am the authority here, not you. So do you hear this strange note of personal authority? You hear it here, you hear it all through the gospel of Mark. Jesus is this stormy, authoritative person who is claiming this unique authority as over against the religious leaders of his day, So look for this as we move through Mark's Gospel and pray for the authority of Jesus to grip your heart and to grip your life because His authority is liberty. His authority is freedom. Have you bowed to the unique authority and dignity of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus not only speaks with authority. He not only, as we see in this wonderful section, challenges their authority. But Jesus also demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates his authority by healing on the Sabbath, which takes us to these six verses in chapter 3. Right on the heels of this, this Sabbath controversy that we have just seen, there is another Sabbath controversy that is recorded as Jesus entered into the synagogue And Mark connects this former with this intentionally. There was a man with a pitiful need, and that need became apparent to Jesus on the Sabbath day. He had some sort, this man did, he had some sort of paralysis making his hand useless. And so we read in chapter 3 verse 2, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him in their minds is the question, will he heal the man? Will he do it on the Sabbath? Why is this an issue? Well, it was widely held by the rabbis that the sick or injured, if they could be cured, should not be cured on the Sabbath unless their lives were in danger. Well, they would look at this man say, he has a withered hand. His life is not in danger. Look at this man. They saw no threat. And if Jesus wanted to heal him, well, he could wait till tomorrow to show mercy to this man, couldn't he? And so they're chomping at the bit to form charges against Jesus, whom they see as a lawbreaker, though he is not. And this is the approach of the legalistic heart. The ethic was very impersonal, it does not relate to God and his perfections, it does not relate to man and his needs. So listen in biblical ethics, Love is never the rival of God's law. And there is perfect harmony between God's law and love and mercy. Jesus' response to this is to tell the man to rise and stand in their midst. See it in verse 3. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. So he has this man right there in the midst of them. where, Where everybody could see him. Where it would be very clear... What is about to happen? Do you read these texts? Do you, do you wish you could have seen their faces? Or do you have a thrill in your heart about what is going to happen? So this man is there in their midst. Everyone can see him, and there's a great drama in the pause as Jesus asked them a question in verse 4. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? What a profound question. Again, Jesus going right to the heart of the matter, isn't he? Cranfield says, this is C.E.B. Cranfield, the New Testament scholar. He says, to omit to do good, which one could do to someone in need, is to do evil. It is to break the sixth commandment. Calvin said, there is little difference between manslaughter and And the conduct of him who does not concern himself about relieving a person in distress. So Jesus' question challenges the heart. Jesus is showing their heart's commitments. Their religion is a cover for their rebellion against God and what it means to be human, created in the image of God. And what must have been going on in their hearts When Jesus asked that question, I think we can tell as we come to the end, they were angry, they were bitter, they resented it. Verse 4, but they remained silent. Because you see, to answer, again, Cranfield puts it this way, would have been to suggest that God had appointed one day and seven on which to do good was forbidden, and to do evil was allowed. So, Is it right to do good on Friday, people of God? Is it right to do good on Monday? Well, then surely it's right to do good on the Lord's Day or on the Sabbath day. And if they had read Isaiah 58, for example, in which God tells them to delight in this special day and to meet the needs of needy people around them, Well, speaking of harming or killing, is that not exactly what was in their heart toward Jesus? They should have believed and they should have repented on the spot. They want him dead. They want their system, which is an unbiblical system, an ungodly system, to be perpetuated. And they want him dead. Verse 5 tells us that as the man stood in their midst, well, let's just read that verse. And, as, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. So as Jesus looked at this man, he looked around the room. His eye swept the room. He looked at all of these Pharisees. And remember, Peter was an eyewitness to this. And as we said in the beginning of Mark's gospel, it is almost certain from church historical records that Peter, this was the preaching of Peter that was passed on and became this gospel of Mark. So Peter, as an eyewitness, points out just one of those interesting details that we find throughout the book of Mark. Jesus reveals the Father's heart. In his anger, he reveals the same anger against sin that the Father would show against our sin when Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute and propitiated the wrath of God. And as to grief, he was grieved, the text tells us. Jesus was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, even the grief of seeing the heart of sin of others around him. It grieved the Lord Jesus Christ. Does it grieve you to see the sin in our culture, our society, the sin of your own heart, but you can go to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and know the joy of growth and grace, and so many around you do not? Well, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand withered, was completely restored. He didn't touch the man, but showed his kindness in a powerful healing word, just as the Lord may be pleased to use the word preached on this very day to heal someone's heart. Yet the Pharisees thought of this as work on the Sabbath. Of all days, isn't this the one on which to heal the man's withered hand? But not for them. So let us never forget the words of Micah. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I remember years ago reading the biography of A.T. Robertson, and there was a reference to this text, not not an exposition, but just a reference, in which the biographer said that he remembered A.T. Robertson speaking about this text, the man healed, The man was healed, he said, right in front of Rabbi Smell Fungus Nose. And that's what happened. This was in the synagogue. The law of God could not heal this man. The law of God cannot heal you, lost sinner. It cannot save you. The law is not given to save, it is given to the saved. The law of God holds you accountable, shows you your sin. You need the Redeemer. The law of God could not heal this man. The Pharisees' man-made additions to God's law could not heal this man. Only Jesus could heal this man. Only Jesus can heal my Pharisaical heart. Only Jesus can give us Sabbath rest. Only Jesus can give us Sabbath delight. Only Jesus can put the law of God in its proper place as a Christian. Only grace can make us humble, grateful, obedient, caring people deep within, having the love of God expressed in our lives. Only Jesus can do this. The law of God, and certainly additions to the law of God, in this pharisaical sense, could never do anything to help a lost sinner. Here's the heart of those opposing the gospel. We find it in chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus healed the man, then what happens? The Pharisees, let's read five and six together. Just look how these are connected. And he looks around them, at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Well, everyone jumps up and praises God and thanks the Lord, right? No, that's not what happened. Verse six, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. So you see, they were willing to break God's law. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. They were willing to break God's law in order to secure their own version of God's law. They would murder rather than have their hearts exposed. They would murder to justify themselves rather than come to God and plead for mercy that he might justify them by grace. The Pharisees were not committed to the law of God. Do you hear that? If you think the problem with the Pharisee is their commitment to the law of God, that's not correct. They were not committed to the law of God. They were committed to themselves. They were even willing to collaborate with those aligned with Herod Antipas, their enemies, to put Jesus to death. Whatever it takes, they must be rid of Jesus. And this is the fundamental problem of every human heart. When an unbeliever deals with God on his own terms, he becomes a parasite on himself. Man-made religion is the ultimate truth suppression If sin is not biblically defined, then we shift our accountability. All I have to do is go through the rites, go through the religious motions, or follow the man-made rules and regulations, live up to my man-made standards, and then I can avoid God and His perfection altogether. It is truth suppression. And that is what it means to be self-righteous. And the truly frightening thing about it is that everyone looks good on the outside in this make-believe world. Everyone looks good on the outside, but the inside is filled with dead men's bones. And the heart without Christ is a grave. The heart without Christ is a place of death. But Christ has come to impute His merit, His righteousness to every sinner who believes. And for those regenerated and justified, He also, through the Holy Spirit, begins to change our hearts, to sanctify us. And He brings freedom and liberty and a certain future for every believer in Jesus Christ. Do you see, do I see, my sin to be a heinous infinitely hell-deserving, heinous rebellion against God. Do I see my sin to be what it is? Do we see the cross of Christ to be the amazing way that God answers that need? Do we see the cross to be the amazing thing that God has done through Jesus our Lord that it is? overwhelming our sin, overplussing in His grace our rebellion. I've mentioned to you this before. I have a friend in Scotland. He's an elderly gentleman, a minister in the Free Church of Scotland, continuing denomination, very conservative Presbyterian, lives up in the north of Scotland. And he says, I've quoted something to you before. Here's something else my friend says. He says, When I get to heaven... He says, when I get to heaven, I will just hold on to Christ's feet and weep and ask him why he should die for someone so unworthy. My friend's viewpoint is the viewpoint of grace. It's not Pharisaism, but it's opposite. That's what it means to trust the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Have you trusted in Him? Believer, are you growing and understanding how great, grand, wonderful, sovereign, free is the grace of God in your life? Let us come to Him, and having come to Him, let us continue to come to Him, to Him, to Him, to Him, who only can be the Redeemer of sinners. Amen and amen. amen.